Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. It's called Munchausen by Internet, the condition of faking illness online. It's a form of factitious disorder, a mental disorder where people fake illness or actually make themselves sick to get sympathy and attention. But one place online that experiences this at higher rates is the cancer community. People in online cancer support groups are routinely outed as healthy. We spoke to Roisin Lanigan, contributor to The Atlantic, for why the internet has a cancer-faking problem. I discovered this problem, I guess, firsthand. Last year, I was going through cancer treatment myself, so I was a member of this Facebook support group. And one day, there was this post from another member who said, oh, there's this lady, Marissa Marchand, and she was presenting as someone who was terminally ill and was going to die but it turned out that she was completely healthy and she'd been arrested and it was just it was just quite shocking to me that this existed it was weird because it had been sort of cross-posted over these different Facebook groups and a lot of women were commenting saying oh you know this is the third time this has happened in my cancer journey or like this is so sick and shocking so it seemed like although it was shocking to me it was actually quite common it happened quite a lot so it was something that I wanted to find out more about and to find out why these people did it especially because a lot of the people who were posting they were saying things like oh you know it's sick why would they do this saying that they were you know heartless or right. freaks or whatever but you know like that that doesn't really explain it either like there is different motivations for these people especially when you know you're not doing it as like a fundraiser you're not doing it for fraud for financial fraud you're doing it for attention right. so I just really wanted to delve into that and, and find out more about why they did it which is as you mentioned linked to this issue of monetizing by internet well, let's uh, start with that uh, example you gave, you you mentioned Marissa Marchand, and tell that part of the story as an example for how this stuff happens. She joined one of these groups. She said she was terminally ill and she was a grieving single mom. She even posted pictures of, of herself bald from chemotherapy. She was wearing an IV drip in some of these pictures. And instantly the outpouring of support and love from these groups, because that's what these groups are all about. They're made for support to help each other. And people are giving her sympathy, money, gifts, wigs to help since she had no hair, things like that. And you mentioned that she got arrested. There was a point in the group where she stopped posting is because she got arrested because she got found out for lying about this whole stuff. She was defrauding some GoFundMe pages. Yeah. Obviously, when someone stops posting in a group that's for cancer survivors, people going through cancer treatment, you assume the worst, especially when they have said, oh, you know, my diagnosis is now terminal. I don't have any treatment options left. And these were groups that were really, really engaged with their members' lives, like especially people like Marissa who who posted who was really active. Stephanie, who I spoke to, who who was the admin of that particular group, you know, she organized things like vigils for women who were at the end of their life and didn't have anyone there with them. So, you know, it's really, really dedicated to helping people and to providing this sort of community. So when Marissa stopped posting, Stephanie took it upon herself to reach out to her family just to confirm that she well they assumed that she died so that then they could say 
day. The funeral is being held here. This is where you can pay your respects. This, this is who you can send your cards to. And she found out that Marissa was in fact healthy, had been arrested for fraud of the GoFundMe, as you mentioned. And that's when she sort of reported back to the group and everything unraveled from there. What are the emotions that go through this? Because on the outside, people that are not part of these communities or these groups, you hear about a story about this and you just think these must be some of the most evil people in the world. You know, how could you fake such a serious illness and try to get away with it just for sympathy. Mm -hmm. But for people that are in these groups that are going through their own struggles with cancer or family members that are going with it, how are they reacting when these people get outed? I think that the reaction is similar, but so much more visceral because, as you said, like these are people who are dealing with these sort of things every day. You know, when I saw that, that post, I was dealing with that every day. I was dealing with hair loss and nausea and all the other, you know, just the uncertainty of knowing whether or not you're going to be okay. So it's the same kind of disgust and anger and just disbelief that you have when you read a story about someone pretending they have cancer when they're actually healthy but on a much huger scale like these people are so upset about this and especially because in the case of Marissa and other people in these Facebook support groups they feel like they're friends with this person they feel like they know them and they've reached out they've given them money or as you mentioned wigs or just emotional support so there's a huge sense of betrayal that you've given your time and money and emotional support to someone who just lied to your face essentially why do people lie about cancer in particular what makes this particular illness i hate to say this way popular but popular for these people Mm -hmm. to to try to take advantage of well it's interesting because Munchausen syndrome, factitious disorder, in the real world, it kind of takes on any illness. You know, you can pretend to have anything when you have this, but on the internet, it seems to be mostly cancer. And I think that's because cancer is really just seen as the boogeyman when it comes to the medical world. Like, it's like the word that you don't want to hear when you go into a doctor's surgery or if you have anything wrong with you. You know, you sort of, people think, you know, like, oh, at least it's not cancer. So I think because cancer is seen as the worst of the worst, people know that you're going to get the most attention for this. And cancer is, because it's so prevalent, because everyone knows someone who's had cancer or they've had cancer themselves, there's so much support online for it because people want to help, so they want to find more information. So there's a huge audience for these people. There's a huge audience for them to get support and attention in saying they have cancer. And also because cancer is so well known, it's quite easy in a way to pretend that you have it, especially if you have seen someone else suffer with it. You right. you know, like like Marissa knew that, you know, if you have no hair, people are going to assume you have cancer. If you're on a drip in the hospital and you say you're having chemo, then why would you lie about that? It's such an extreme, extreme thing to lie about that people sort of take you at face value. Yeah, and you can draw it out for a long time too because uh, exactly, a lot of the yeah. symptoms don't always present themselves immediately. So when you're in these groups and online communities, what does a group do when they suspect that somebody might be lying when they, you know, things just aren't adding up? How do they go about finding the truth out about some of these people? It's a really traumatic experience when evidence does present itself that people are lying because, as I said, like these groups exist solely for the purpose of giving people support. So you want to take people at face value and you want to believe the best of them. So when it seems that things maybe aren't adding up, it does take several members going to the admin and saying, you know, like, oh, 
they've said this, they've said this, something isn't right here. And in the case of Marissa, the admin took it upon herself to contact other family members. And that's happened in other cases too, that they've gone to a sister or a husband and said, your wife, your sister, your friend is telling us all this stuff. Is it true? And quite often they'll say, no, it's a lie. And one of the Um, things that happens too is uh, some of these people will often post on more than one group. They don't necessarily just mm-hmm. pick the one. Uh, so they're kind of, uh, whether it's an alias or they use the same names a lot of times, some people will often cross post in other groups to try to say, hey, do this person claiming to do this as well. So there's this little bit of detective work that has to go through it to try to find these people. Yeah, you sort of have to become an amateur detective yourself and then take on the burden of going through all these other communities that this person has been in and lied to and taking on the responsibility of telling all those other people that they've come in connection with that they were wasting your time, basically. So it's, it's a huge burden that people take upon themselves to do this and to make sure that the people in those groups are telling the truth, basically. What do health experts and psychologists say about why people do this? I mean, is it just strictly for the sympathy and the attention? It's such an unknown, as it were, in, in like psychiatry circles. Like I spoke to Dr. Mark Feldman, who was the person who discovered or like coined the term Munchausen by internet back in 2000. And he said, you know, there's there's no study that shows how widespread this is because of the nature of the internet. Like the internet is just so vast that it's impossible to get a real handle on why people do this or how many people do it. But I, I think personally, it's like it's very linked to social media and how you can get huge amounts of sympathy for posting about bad things that happen to you. Like even I know from personal experience when I posted about finishing chemo or going into the hospital, people are very quick to reach out and say, you know, I'm here for you, I support you. And if you have this mental disorder, like that can be incredibly addictive to know that you then have that never-ending support if you're ill. The last thing I just wanted to ask you, you did mention that you went through cancer treatments and in your article you mentioned that it was the hardest thing you've ever done, but it was also the time in your life when you had the most support. How has your journey gone and, and where are you now? So I was diagnosed with breast cancer in February last year and like as I said in the piece I was 26 I didn't have any history of it in my family so it was a real shock and I turned to online to get that support which is why I discovered this issue but in terms of like my own journey last year I had whole heaps of treatment so I had chemotherapy and surgery and radiotherapy and then towards the end of last year I found out that I had NED which is basically like cancer speak for no evidence of disease in your body which is great news Yeah, Um, and I finished active treatment now so I'm just sort of, uh, you know, you have to kind of keep taking tablets and keep an eye on it for five years. But, you know, touch wood, everything's looking much better than it did last year, which is great news. Yeah, that's great news. And we wish you nothing but continued health. Roisin Lanigan, contributor to The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. For anybody that has a smart speaker in your home, you should know that it's probably always eavesdropping on you. The smart speaker is always listening, and in many cases, it's also recording and keeping that recording for whatever company that owns it to listen to later. We spoke to Jeffrey Fowler. He's a tech columnist at the Washington Post, and he told us what he learned after listening to four years of his own Amazon Alexa archives. Amazon keeps a copy of everything Alexa records after it hears its name, and also sometimes even when it doesn't hear its name. So I decided to go through my own personal archive, four years of recordings. And in there, I found thousands of fragments of 
my family's life. I think there's just a lot more that's being not only recorded, but saved by Amazon and other smart speaker makers. And I think a lot of people might realize. They do make these audio files available to you. There's a way that you can Google it. You can, I think in your article, you actually have a link on how to go listen to your Alexa archives, but it's not just Amazon and Alexa. All the other ones are doing it too. Apple does it. Google was doing it. I think they just changed some of their policies on that. I love the way you put in the article. There's a brazen data grab going on and there's few regulations on this and very little people who can be watchdogs on this to check all this stuff. So what is the line from Amazon? How is this improving their AI? How is this improving their products? The line from Amazon is that they use the voice recordings to better be able to understand different kinds of accents or different kinds of sonic situations. So they really set up the situation as kind of like, we have to make a choice between privacy and the function of their technology. But I think that's a pretty false choice. And you mentioned something a minute ago that is that proves the point. Google last year stopped requiring folks to allow them to keep the recordings of your interaction with their assistants, which you get to through Google Home devices or through Android phones. And Google has arguably an even better artificial intelligence technology than Amazon does. And they've said, no, actually, we don't need it. So I think what's really happening is we're seeing Amazon and other companies grab whatever data they can. We're in this phase where there aren't really any laws or any rules and most people haven't been noticing or poking around in it. So they're grabbing whatever they can, just in the hopes that it might be useful in the future. With the Alexa, you have to actually manually delete the recordings, but they're still going to continue to record you. (laughs) So you have to go that way. Google has changed their stuff. You can put that stuff on pause so they don't record you. Where does Apple fit into this? Apple is interesting because they, of course, like to tout that they're better at privacy. And in many aspects of the smart home, they are a little better at privacy. But in this one, it's kind of a head scratcher. Siri, by default, records you. Now, they don't necessarily associate associate those recordings with you personally in the way that Google and Amazon do. They anonymize it to a certain degree, but Apple does not give you a choice to tell them to stop recording, which which really surprised me. It's not just the smart speakers, every appliance, everything that's connected to a smart speaker or your smart home, let's say, is collecting data on you. Tell us about that. I spent some time going through four years of voice archives, and then I said, well, gosh, I wonder what else is being collected about my smart home. So I went to the Nest thermostat. I went to my Hue light bulbs. I went to my connected garage door and doorbell and all these sorts of things. And I started quizzing the companies that make them about what data not only they were collecting, but also what they were storing on their website and who else they were sharing it with. And I found almost all of them were storing very intimate details about what went on in my house indefinitely. In some cases, I really had to kind of dig into it to get them to tell me exactly when and how, or in one case, they let me see it. And in other cases, they only give you the, the power to delete it if you want, but otherwise they know most people won't ask. And so they're going to hold on to it forever and ever. And then the craziest part of all is I found almost all of them were sharing all of that data with Amazon as well, because as part of the deal to be able to allow your device to be operated by Alexa, Amazon insists that these companies hand over all this live data about what's going on with the devices in the home. Your Nest thermostat can tell when you're getting up for maybe a late night snack. Let's say you have a smart fridge. Uh, It knows you open the fridge and it's going to tell all this information back to Amazon. And then you're going to get ads later saying, hey, uh, try out these favorite snacks that people have been buying in your area. Things like that. You know, it's just so crazy how interconnected this stuff is. And with everybody sharing all the data that's being gathered and it's all being stored, they create these profiles of individual people and how to market and how to advertise towards them. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. Thank <laughs> you.
think the most curious story of the week took place in Iowa. There were some dogs that had to be quarantined after officials detected a vicious disease that was sweeping some kennels out there. And humans could be at risk, too. There were several cases of something called canine brucellosis. It was coming from a commercial small dog breeding facility. The disease is zoonotic, meaning that it can be passed from dogs to humans. That's why there was such alarm and interest into the story. It's rare that it can move from dogs to humans, but still something to know about. My producer, Miranda, joins us for what we need to know. This is a bacterial disease, and it's spread through reproductive fluids. That's not to say necessarily like seminal, but it is like blood or birthing fluid, that kind of thing. So it's an infection caused by the Brucella canis bacteria. It's highly contagious between dogs. It can cause infertility, spontaneous abortions, and stillbirths in dogs. It's been reported in North, Central, and South America, parts of Asia, Africa, Europe. It's been all reported all over the world, but it's really concentrated in this one county in Iowa. Not to alarm people, this is not a very common occurrence that it makes its way to humans or anything like that. And even the symptoms aren't as severe as manifests itself in the dogs, but it is possible for humans to get it. The people that are most at risk, since it has to do with birthing tissues and, and fluids mostly, are the breeders and veterinarians or people that might work at kennels. So how does it manifest in humans if they contract it? With humans, it can cause fever, sweats, headaches, joint pains, weakness. Basically, it manifests like the flu. That's how you feel like you have the flu. Long-term infection, though, can result in arthritis, recurring fevers. Less often cases can involve damage to your nervous system, your eyes or your heart. As far as dogs, they a lot of times won't even show any symptoms, but it can show swelling of your lymph nodes, behavioral abnormalities, lethargy and weight loss. Yeah, the Iowa State University said that the disease could cause a woman to miscarry or give birth prematurely, but... Again, this is going to be an extremely rare case and probably only possible if they're like a vet or a breeder or something like that. Right. So and how dogs can contract it, they get it through those fluids and everything. But they even said that you can get it from other dogs, eyes, noses or mouths. So if dogs are licking each other Mm -hmm. or something and that happens often where dogs are licking other dogs faces and things. So right now, all of this is concentrated on this commercial breeding facility in Marion County, Iowa. What do we know about them? This is what happened. This woman named Amy Hines, she runs something called the uh, Ahan's 57 Pet Rescue and Transport. And she's kind of the whistleblower in this situation. She and her organization bought 30 dogs from this breeder at some kind of like an animal auction show, whatever. And they all tested negative for the disease. And when she got them home, they were all sick. They all had the symptoms and they are now in a 30 day quarantine. They're saying that this is really messing with the stray dogs in this town in Iowa, because now all of the animals in that town are under quarantine, including all of the shelters, et cetera. So there's no place to home these homeless dogs. Health officials are contacting anybody that might have purchased a dog from one of the breeders. Since this is kind of an ongoing illness, dogs have to be put down when they contract this. That's because there's no cure. There's no medication. There's nothing that can be done. Once you have it, it's a chronic condition and they're just going to keep getting it. And the other bad thing about it, as you were saying, you know, a lot of the times the dogs are asymptomatic. You can give the dogs antibiotics and it can suppress some of the symptoms and even give false reports on the tests. So if a dog has had antibiotics, 
it might show up as a negative test. That's why they have to quarantine them for so long and retest them. And there's actually suspicion that the breeder knew that the dogs had this disease, gave them the antibiotics to suppress their symptoms so that they wouldn't appear sick or ill at the auction and that they would pass the test because as of Monday of this week, they're no longer breeding dogs and their Facebook page says that they're shut down as well. Imagine being a family who just got a new dog. Now you have to test them for this. And if it comes up positive, you know, you have to get rid of the dog. That's just heartbreaking. But one more reason to adopt and not shop for your pets. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.